Hello, everybody. My name is Christian Cison, and welcome to another episode of Third Fridays. Today, my guest is a guest for the third time. <laughs> that is uh, a new record here at, at Third Fridays and, and Lois Law Firm uh, Kill Room. Uh, his name is Chris Major. Say hello, Chris. Hi. Hi, everybody. Hi, Christian. I'm uh, becoming a, a little too familiar with this uh, studio for my own liking, but in, in fairness to you, I, I constantly pitch topics, so uh, bring it on myself. Well, you know, if, if I may if I may say something about that, uh, you do come up with ideas that I can use for the podcast, so even if I didn't like you, I would feel <laughs> obligated to bring you on so that you wouldn't feel like I'm taking your credit. Well, so I'm touched. Thank you. All right. So... Let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to talk to talk talk to you today about uh, the former podcast that I did with Chris, or, or the the prior podcast I did, was about a case that involved contracts of adhesion, uh, joint employer doctrine, and public policy. Uh, so let me recoup everything for you guys. Uh, what happened was a petitioner in New Jersey had signed an employment contract with a staffing agency. And the staffing agency uh, staffed him, for lack of a better term, with uh, a security company for which he was going to work as a guard, right? Right. And as a part of that employment contract, he signed an agreement that included a release. That release stated that the petitioner would waive liability of the staffing agency's clients or customers – in any kind of action, including workers' compensation claims, uh, does that does that ring a bell, Chris? Yeah, and and I think the the language about the workers' compensation claim thing is is actually very important because uh, you know the language of the release says uh, you know claims arising from or related to injuries which are covered under the workers' compensation statutes, and it's that little blurb there that brings the whole uh, import of this decision within the purview of our podcast and what we do as uh, defense counsel. Um, so yeah, we have this, uh, discussion by the appellate division that you and I dove into in, uh, excruciating detail last time. Um, maybe excruciating for the (laughs) listeners, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Chris. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we enjoy nerding out here over, uh, over the law. So, um, we had, uh, just the quick bullet points from the appellate division. So they say that this, uh, relationship between, uh, allied, that is to say the, uh, Client or the customer, right? Or, or the petitioner's employer that's hiring out the Oh, petitioner. Allied – right. You're right. Allied was the staffing agency. Right. And then uh, Vitaly – or I'm sorry, Shearing Plow, which is the uh, company Vitaly's being hired out to and Vitaly the petitioner. They're saying that under this joint employer slash special employee doctrine, which says, you know, for the purposes of workers' comp, a petitioner can have two employers – uh, this relationship has been long recognized and accommodated by the Workers' Compensation Act. And I remember uh, you and I sort of dove into that and went on a tangent about that that specific doctrine. And we were collectively scratching our heads going, uh, you know, we're not quite sure how this how this is uh, applicable here. I think what, what they're trying to say is that, uh, you know, because the uh, shearing plow, the company that's hiring the petitioner, uh, because they could also be considered an an employer, then this is an impermissible waiver of compensation. I think that's the conclusion we arrived at. Yeah, I I think you're you're right there, Chris. I, and for our New York audience, uh, you may think of the term general special, 
which has been bandied about uh, when we have two employers in a case that may be directing, controlling, and sometimes even paying the claimant uh, uh, from multiple sources. So that's where we had the confusion because a joint employer or a general special issue is usually restricted to cases where it's obvious that the claimant is taking orders or the, or the petitioner is taking orders or has agreements with both entities. This was a little bit different because the agreement was made with the staffing agency, but it included a term that was relevant to a client of the staffing agency. So we were kind of confused as to why the appellate division would use this language to come to their finding when the public policy issue we actually agreed with. We said that you know someone uh, who is signing up for this type of employee is not going to have the bargaining power to take that release out of his employment agreement, and it's really not fair to force that employee to sign the release. Right, and, and that's where you have the uh, classic, classic language of the take-it-or-leave-it basis that is the foundation for invalidating contracts of adhesion. Uh, and so we have this argument from the appellate division, uh, the salient argument, in my opinion, about uh, how this agreement is substantively unconscionable. And uh, one, we have the contract of adhesion thing, which you just discussed, the disparate bargaining power, the take-it-or-leave-it basis. Uh, and then they said it also sought to unlawfully waive conduct that could be considered reckless or intentional under general tort law but uh, may nonetheless result in compensable injuries covered by the Workers' Compensation Act because um, this goes into the uh, laid low claims, and that's a whole other discussion for another day. But the bar for when uh, you know conduct by the employer is intentional is quite high under the Workers' Compensation Act, and it's a different standard in tort law. So uh, you know that's another reason for substantive unconscionability. Um, so when the, when the Supreme Court grants cert on this, uh, well, you know, bringing that up, right, like. The fact that they granted cert for a case that was held for the petitioner with an outcome that was reasonable, that's where we, you know, we started, the wheels started turning. We we're just like, you know what, maybe this weird little inclusion of joint employer is going to be discussed by the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court, I, I just don't know why it would have to reverse the, the eventual outcome of that case. The appellate division really came up with the correct issue, and that's a very rare thing to hear from me, uh, a tried and true defense attorney who. Uh, will, you know, will do everything in my power to uh, cut off benefits and suspend treatment because I believe it's the right thing to do in most cases. Yeah, right? well, we, we can't help it if they're always wrong. <laughs> that's <laughs> yes, that's that's absolutely true. Um, so the you're right. The Supreme Court grants uh, cert, uh, and what happens next? So we have the defendant uh, raising a couple of arguments, uh, the, the defendant being shearing plow, and, and the sole issue is whether summary judgment should have been granted by virtue of the disclaimer, right? So we have this defendant saying, you know, uh, New Jersey courts routinely enforce contracts limiting the employee's rights as long as they're clear and unambiguous. Uh, there's no public policy effect here because the plaintiff had ample notice that employment as a security guard for Allied's customers entails a risk of injury, and I... I I find that argument to be a little flimsy in saying, yeah, hey, you're a security guard. Expect to get hurt. I mean, that's kind of like what it translates to to me. Uh, and then finally, there's it's actually the, that you know <laughs> that old. It's the reason why workers' compensation became a system in the first place, right? Like when the American steelworkers uh, in the early days were building railroads, dying on the job was an assumption of the risk, and that's why workers' compensation is a system we use today, right? Right. 
And, you know, uh, along that same line about the whole, you know, beneficent and remedial purposes of this social legislation, uh, you know, the defendant argues that the disclaimer is in line with the objectives of the Workers' Compensation Act because it preserves all of the remedies against the employer prescribed by that statute. And the plaintiff um, brings up uh, the exact same arguments the appellate division did. That it's a contract of adhesion that's unconscionable and offends public policy, and it's an exculpatory contract contrary to public policy, and that's the thing we're talking about with the uh, intentional or reckless conduct under tort law. So uh, those are the competing arguments we got here, and uh, you know this is where uh, I come in with the Section 40 slash third party reimbursement aspect. Um, the I don't want to understate the import of this decision because it's it's an important. Um, construction of the interplay between two sections in the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. Uh, Section 40, which we're all well familiar with at this point, the right of an employee to sue a third party uh, for a work-related injury, you know, the libel third-party tortfeasor, and the compensation carrier or employer's lien on the employee's recovery in that third-party action. Uh, And, you know, the Supreme Court talks about how Section 40 promotes this quote-unquote, equitable, equitable balancing of competing interests. And, you know, it's how we sort of um, throw a bone to the employer and to the uh, workers' compensation carrier while making sure the worker uh, gets his payment, gets his day in court, so to speak. Um, so we have this discussion about Section 40, uh, and then there's the lesser uh, talked about Section 39. And... Uh, you know, not to go too deep into it, I'm just going to recite the language. Uh, they say, no agreement, composition, or release of damages made before the happening of any accident, except the agreement defined in Section 34, 7 uh, I think that that agreement under Section 7 is uh, literally an agreement saying we're going to pay workers' comp pursuant to the statute. So it's basically an agreement saying, hey, we're, we're going to pay comp. So, I, you know, of course, that agreement's going to be valid. Um, shall be valid or shall bar a claim for damages, and damages is the important word we're going to get into, uh, for the injury resulting therefrom, and any such agreement is declared to be against public policy. And we have the appellate division and the Supreme Court talking about public policy, but what's kind of nice or or interesting, in my opinion, is here we have the legislature uh, expressly invoking the public policy concern behind any such waiver. It's a, it's a good point because usually the argument against decisions on the basis of public policy is that they're not rooted in they – are not, they're not codified. They're not in statutes. You can't actually tell that it was the intent of the legislature unless you're going a, into a deep dive into the, the history and, and the minutes of those hearings where they bring up these, these statutes and codes – to actually make it clear that there is a valid public policy reason makes it more uh, – or makes the court more likely to use that as a reason, which is important for this specific case. Right. And, uh, you know, you have public policy concerns as this sort of um, catch-all uh, common sense, if you will, uh, basis for invalidating things that are – that appear to be on their face unfair, right? So uh, – we have Section 39, and it talks about a pre. What it boils down to is no pre-accident waivers of damages for uh, work-related injuries, basically. So, you know, that sounds like, hey, you can't prospect- prospectively waive workers' compensation liability. 
Um, now, where this is important is uh, the Supreme Court looks at this language of damages and says, hey, that's the exact same terminology used in Section 40. And just like using the term public policy, the legislature deliberately uses the term damages. Uh, and that's the same term used in Section 40 to describe the employee's remedy in any third-party claim. So this is the important bridge between the two statutes because uh, this is how they're interrelated. We have this uh, use of the terminology damages, and the court is saying this expansive terminology chosen by the legislature is intentional. And so Section 39, this uh, pre-accident waiver of comp liability, uh, also applies to pre-accident waivers of rights under Section 40. Don't you love it when statutes just intertwine and tell tell a story, Chris? <laughs> well, and and what 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 we uh, found kind of interesting is, you know, you and I were discussing um, before this uh, podcast uh, that w- we were guessing um, the joint employer and special employee uh, doctrine, the invocation of that doctrine by the appellate division, was uh, some sort of attempt to find a basis in workers' compensation law. Uh, to invalidate this statute. Right, which could have been dangerous, right? Because if the Supreme Court didn't comment on it or didn't grant cert, then you would be worried that that little dicta kind of blows up and becomes somewhat persuasive than to somewhat binding for cases that are more geared towards the joint employer issue, right? Right, and I, I just want to backtrack a second there. I think I said uh, invalidate that statute. I meant to say this uh, this waiver. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, we have uh, it, it's a, it's a dangerous road to go down, and it's sort of fleshing out this uh, joint employer special employee doctrine um, that you know has been laid out in all the other cases that you and I discussed, um, and and we're thinking uh, you and I were speculating that you know maybe this is just the way to make this part of the workers' comp discussion, and what we're getting here from the New Jersey Supreme Court is. Um, an actual basis in the statute, right? Not not in a doctrine outlined by the courts, but an actual basis in the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act for this. And that is to say, Section 39, the pre-accident waiver of uh, comp liability, uh, and the use of the term damages applies to Section 40 rights and damages. It's a it's a really really uh, interesting analysis. I'm not I'm. I'm saying that only because I'm a law nerd as well. You know, honestly, it's amazing that we both have a lot of friends that, that aren't in the legal field. Well, I mean, speak for yourself there, Christian. I, oh, <laughs> well, Chris, you'll always be my friend. Oh, thank you. I guess that's why I'm here so, so often. So what, what did the Supreme Court say about uh, the appellate division's comment on uh, joint employer doctrine and, and for New York, you know, think general special? Yeah, and and you and I uh, sort of did a behind-the-scenes uh, fist pump at, at being vindicated with our confusion <laughs> right. about about this. Right. Uh, there's this. nothing worse, or there's nothing better than like you know going through your little conspiracy theories or or you know ruminations about why things are and get it validated by people more important than you, <laughs> right? So yeah, uh, the Supreme Court and and I I believe. Um, when you looked at it, it's in a uh, it's in a footnote. I think footnote four to the opinion, and that's available on. Um, it's not out for publication yet. It's available on njcourts.gov. You can find it if you want to read it. Um, that's right. Third Fridays is bringing to you an unpublished opinion. Yeah, get it. We are way ahead of the game here, and and we will remain that way. So, um, 
we have uh, – the, they mentioned in this footnote, we have no idea why they invoked this, this, this doctrine. Uh, this, the Supreme Court is saying we don't know why the appellate division did this. You know, neither the plaintiff nor the defendant Raised brought, this. Yeah, brought yeah. up this argument. And, and so, you know, they, they, I believe they actually use the term irrelevant. They find the discussion of that doctrine to be irrelevant. And instead of having this, you know, tenuous connection via the concept that uh, the petitioner had two employees or, or two employers – you know, that that sort of tenuous connection as a basis to invalidate uh, the contract waiver, whatever you want to call it, there's an actual uh, basis in the, in the Workers' Compensation Act, and um, it's Section 39 as applied jointly with Section 40. So I, I kind of want to go over the importance of that, that little uh, comment. I guess it's really not so little uh, based on how we're going to apply it going forward. Uh, the firm here has plenty of uh, clients that do this type of work, staffing agencies, temp agencies, uh, making contracts with an employee that will provide services to a third entity. And it's important to note that the use of uh, joint employer for cases that aren't supposed to use it, for lack of a better term, has really been vindicated by the New Jersey Supreme Court. We want to make sure that certain little issues that we can squash in the beginning don't become bigger things. And I'm very happy that the Supreme Court has uh, essentially uh, agreed with us uh, on that topic. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we we should be perfectly clear here. Um, You know, we're not really diving into the discussion of how this joint employer doctrine applies in the context of staffing agencies. As we right. said, that's, or, that's a whole other discussion. That's actually a great point because just because you may be a staffing agency doesn't mean that you're not subject to the joint employer doctrine, right? Right. It's really a facts and circumstances kind of uh, analysis. Who pays the checks? Uh, who has the right to control? There's all different kinds of Right. Elements. You go down the line, um, but for this specific case where the – employee did not really make any contract with the third entity. There was no real payment coming from that party. Uh, it, it's a distinguishable case from joint employer. Right. And and that's why, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court saying that that discussion is irrelevant sort of uh, removes the, the, the shroud of uh, confusion about, about this whole fact pattern. Uh, you know, it, it sort of clears up uh, where you and I were scratching our heads wondering how that how that applies in this instance. And so uh, just as a practical note, what this means for what we do and what this means for our clients, uh, again, I, I do not want to understate the, the import of this, of this decision uh, because here we have yet again a recognition of the carrier's right to reimbursement from third-party cases and not just a recognition of it, uh, another protection of it. And, and the Supreme Court phrases it, in terms of um, this equitable balancing of interest between the petitioner, the employee, or the petitioner, the employer, and the employer's insurance carrier, uh, but it's but it's nice to see this this protection again and recognition of the carrier's right to a lien and right to reimbursement, along with the employee's right to sue a third party outside of workers' compensation. Well said, well said, Chris. Because uh, any decision that really continues to float the uh, 
existence and importance of Section 40 in New Jersey and Section 29 in New York uh, is more helpful than it – it really isn't hurtful at all because yeah. it really cements uh, you know, the, one of the uh, advantages we have in defending a claim you know, that there is a high floor when certain uh, facts apply. Right, and you know any decision that uh, upholds the rights and enforces the rights under Section 29 in New York <clears throat> or Section 40 in New Jersey uh, gets the seal of approval, thumbs up from uh, you know myself and Christian. Um, and you know if you want to boil this down to uh, just a single sentence, and and I would caution against doing that, but let's just say for simplification's sake. In situations where a third party is going to seek to limit their civil tort liability by having an employee from a staffing agency execute a pre-accident waiver, uh, this Vitaly decision stands for the proposition that the employee's right to sue that third party is preserved despite the language of this waiver. Uh, and that has little to do with um, the language of the waiver or you know the, the public policy unconscionability. Even though that even though Section Thirty Nine references public policy, uh, it's it's again a statutory basis for this protection, and the carrier's lien remains valid, protected, and fully enforceable despite any such attempted waiver. Right, and I, I keep harping on on defend from day one, which I th- actually think is the first time I mentioned that phrase today, but I. I I wanted to bring it up because I appreciate the staffing agency's uh, enthusiasm in trying to defend a claim from day one. Uh, but this is one where, you know, I, I agree with the court. I think you do too. Uh, it's important to make sure that uh, people aren't taken advantage of uh, and that we monitor, administer, and regulate these claims in a way that's fair to both sides. That's that's really what I'm after with uh, defend from day one. Uh, so I I think it is relevant here. Um, any last thoughts, Chris? Uh, yeah, just um, just as a small tangent that popped into my head while you were going on that discussion. Uh, it's kind of interesting because in another light, you can view this kind of waiver as a waiver of the carrier's right, uh, which, I mean, under any sort of construction would be uh, or interpretation would be invalid. You're signing away the carrier's right to reimbursement for them. That is actually uh, probably the most important thing that one of us has said in this podcast. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and we get there right at the very end. Right. But defend if, from day one. If, if you're <laughs> going to have this waiver or this release be enforceable – then you are taking away a third-party defendant from the petitioner or claimant, which then hurts the rights of the workers' compensation carrier if there is no other defendant for the petitioner or claimant to sue. Probably the most important thing you said, that's why you're my Section 40 and now 29 and now 39 superhero, Chris. <laughs> uh, Thank so, you, sir. So for Chris, uh, this is Christian Cison coming to you live from the Kill Room. Third Friday's podcast, Defend from Day One, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.